We're going to continue our study in Exodus. The title of my sermon this morning is The Glory of the Lord. And the big idea, God's glory is his glorious goal for all that he does. God's glory is his glorious goal for all that he does. Um, I failed to put this in your handout, so I'm going to provide it now. Just an outline, a simple outline of this passage. Again, the passage is Exodus 13, 17 to the end of chapter 14. So I'm going to write this down. Exodus 13, 17 to 22, you can write out to the side the departure. That is the departure. This is where we read about Israel leaving Egypt, right? God parting the Red Sea. Maybe you have in mind Charlton Heston, I don't know, uh, the Ten Commandments. But this is a high point, right? This is just after the Passover. And so God is taking his people out of Egypt. And, of course, we have uh, these beautiful theophanies. And, again, what is a theophany? It's a visible manifestation of God. We have the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. We have God parting the Red Sea. We have him taking his people through the Red Sea. And, of course, as Egypt pursues Pharaoh and his army, what happens? They are destroyed. God's judgment. And so this is a really great passage. Uh, again, 13, 17 to 22 is the departure. Chapter 14, 1 to 25 is the crossing. Okay, so we have the departure, the crossing, and then 14, 26 to 29 is the victory. The departure, the crossing, and the victory. I've done a lot of weddings. Um, I think close to 20 weddings now, which I had a pastor friend in Washington. He was in his 70s. He's done like 200, and so I don't feel like I've done a lot when I compare myself to Tim Walton. But I've done about 20 weddings so far, and uh, my favorite part, <clears throat> this has become my favorite part. My favorite part when I officiate a wedding is watching the groom's face when the bride comes down the aisle. You know what I'm talking about? And I'm like, I usually bet with the groomsman, you know, is, is he going to cry? Oh, yeah, five seconds, he'll be weeping like a baby like I was. I don't really do that, by the way. That was a joke. He's betting before he does the, no, I'm, guys, come on now. Hopefully you know me by now. That was just a silly joke. But anyways, my favorite part is to look at the groom, his face, as his beautiful bride-to-be comes toward him. And so what you typically see is he is in awe, right? He is in awe of the beauty of his bride. He is moved to wonder and thanksgiving. He longs at that moment, and before that, but that moment, he longs to commit to his bride and to enjoy life with her. And this, I believe, is a picture of the central theme in the Bible. God reveals his glory, his awe, and his wonder, so that we, his creatures, might enjoy him, so that we might glorify him. Amen? He reveals his glory so that we might enjoy him, so we might trust in him, but also enjoy him. Uh, four things in today's passage we're going to look at. And I have a sub-point. I believe in your notes there should be a blank under each point. Um, and so for number one, we have the presence of the Lord. Number two, the glory of the Lord. Number three, the victory of the Lord. And then number four, the proper response to the Lord. Okay, so again, the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, the victory of the Lord, and the proper response to the Lord. So let's start with the presence of the Lord. Is this a big theme in Scripture? God's presence? God's presence with his people? Yes. This is God's promise. So that's if you fill in the blanks. The presence of the Lord is God's promise. It's his promise. Here we see God's faithfulness on display. 
As promised, God would be with his people. And that's everything, right? That's everything. What makes heaven heaven? You know, I've asked this question kind of tongue-in-cheek, and I expect this answer, but would you want to go to heaven if Jesus wasn't there? And this should not be a pondering question. No, no, of course not, because being with the Lord makes heaven heaven. His presence is everything, amen? Because of the gospel, we get God's presence. That's the greatest gift. We get to be with the Lord. Exodus 13, 21 and 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So, The Lord's presence did not what? It did not depart from before his people. His presence is a gift to his people, to his rescued people. Now, if you know the Abrahamic covenant, God's promise to Abraham, beginning in chapter 12 of Genesis, verses 1, 2, and 3, the promise of God's presence is integral to that promise, to that covenant. What made the promise of blessing so sweet was the presence of the Lord. Again, the God of the Bible is not depicted as an absent landlord, but the present Father, the one who is with his, he's with his people. God is not, what we see in Scripture is God is not acting uh, on his promises from afar, but rather he is making his presence known, showing his people time and time again that he is with them. Genesis 28, 15, behold, I am with you. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you. I will not leave you. Exodus 6, 6 to 8, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out. I will do it. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. One more. Exodus 25, 8. And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. The tabernacle and later on the temple are proof par excellence that the Lord desires to dwell with his people. Aren't you thankful? (laughs) And what we see in scripture is that God goes to infinite lengths to bring his people back into his presence. We don't deserve his presence, do we? We're sinners. The fact that we get his presence, what does that teach us about God? What kind of God is he? That he would allow us to be with him. And not just allow it, but make it possible. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. Amen? He's a God who takes initiative. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. Guys, I mean, come on now, with you. He's with you. I'm going to go with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Why does God remind his people of that time and time again? Because it instills what? Confidence, peace, hope, joy. Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. 
And do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There is no hope without this promise. And as we see later on, this is Exodus 32. Theologians often refer to this as the second fall. What am I talking about? The golden calf debacle. God threatens to remove his presence from the people of Israel. Oh! Listen to how Moses prays. Moses prayerfully intervenes on behalf of the people. When this threat is made known that God is going to remove his presence, is there any hope without the presence of God? Say it in Spanish. No. Exodus 33, 14 to 16. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is not in your going, <clears throat> is it not, is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses knew that the absence of God's presence meant certain disaster for Israel. And not only that, but he also knew that Israel's mission of being a light to the world would fail without the presence of the Lord. We have a similar mission, don't we? What is our mission as the church? Go make disciples of all nations. And what's the promise at the end of that commission? What makes that mission possible? It's not mission impossible. It's mission possible because of the promise. And what is the promise? And I'll be with you always to the end of the age. What do we have? The promise of his presence. Amen? Without the presence of the Lord, there be no rest, no entrance into the promised land, no mission. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. What does God's presence mean for Israel? The three Ps. <laughs> protection, provision, and peace. Protection, provision, and peace. And what does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about God? He's personal. He's relational. He's gracious. We get his presence. Paradise is lost in Genesis 3. What takes place from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation is the story of divine rescue. God making a way for his people to dwell with him again. Let's talk about theophany. What's a theophany? The visible manifestation of who? Of God. Why does God reveal himself? I think it's the same answer for why he's present. It instills confidence and peace. Exodus 13, 21 and 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Here the Lord is clearly identified with the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The Lord is visibly with his people. Now what do we see in Exodus 14, 19? The angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Did you catch that? When the pillar moved, who else moved? The Malach Yahweh, the messenger of the Lord, right? The divine messenger. Who was here back in Exodus 3? We talked about the burning bush. All right, this is a bit of a review. 
We saw this same thing back in Exodus 3 with the burning bush. In Exodus 3, 2, it reads that the angel of the Lord, the Moloch Yahweh, that's the Hebrew, appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And in Exodus 3, 4, it reads, God called out to him from the bush. So the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire. But who calls out? It's God. Which is it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> the Moloch Yahweh, right, doesn't have to mean angel. It can mean messenger, the divine messenger. So I believe that the Moloch Yahweh and the Lord are the same. God reveals himself through this messenger. He speaks through his messenger. This is a pointer to who? Who's the ultimate messenger of the Lord? Who is the word? Christ. Christ is the word or messenger of God. We can reasonably deduce that the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire are a Christophany, a pre-incarnate manifestation of the eternal Son of God. More to the point, this is cool, we're going to go New Testament, more to the point that the pillar of cloud is a theophany, but more than that, a Christophany. So this is a what? A pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. Let's look at two New Testament passages where the image of cloud is associated with Jesus. So this is Mark 13, 26, uh, quoting from Daniel 7, 13, Mark 13, 26, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Acts 1, 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Let's talk about the significance of fire and cloud. Why does God appear in fire? Why does God appear in a cloud? Is there any significance to that? I think so. We talked about this back in Exodus 3. As we saw with fire, when associated, when fire is associated with the Lord, it symbolizes his holiness. Everybody say holiness. His holiness and his commitment to judge wickedness. God is holy and he'll deal with wickedness. Amen? That's fire. Now, what about the cloud? This is really good. This is from Vern Poitras. He writes, Sometimes a cloud has the primary function of concealing God or hiding God. But he also appears in the cloud. Both functions match the character of God. Human beings never master God or know him exhaustively. So the cloud is a reminder of human limits. At the same time, God does draw near and establish communion with mankind. So the cloud represents his drawing near. Because ordinary clouds are in the sky, the use of cloud symbolism also reminds us that God's dwelling is especially in heaven. He goes on to write, a cloud symbolizes his coming near to us from heaven. Amen? The God of heaven comes near to us. What do we call that? Grace. What incredible grace. So in the cloud theophany, heaven has come down. God is drawing near to his people. And as the fire reminds us, this God is holy. He's not to be trifled with. Let me quickly trace this theme of God's presence into the New Testament. First, we have the incarnation. This is probably the example, the most obvious example. God being with us, the incarnation. Well, I mean, I tried to define this for our kids at kid camp. That's a big word, incarnation. What does it mean? The God of heaven, 
More specifically, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, came to earth. He became man. He lived a perfect life. God came to us. God became man. John 1.14, in the Word, who is Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The God of heaven has come down to be with his people. Amen? And not just to be with us, but to save us. Another great example of presence, God's presence in the New Testament is, I already alluded to it, the Great Commission. This is Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The third example is the new heaven and the new earth. Now, I, I posed this question earlier. Would you want to go to heaven if God weren't there? No, because then heaven would not be heaven. What makes heaven heaven? The presence of the Lord, amen? Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So heaven comes down, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, now listen to this. This is everything. This is our hope. Amen? This is it. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. That's got to be the greatest prepositional phrase in the Bible. With them. With who? God's redeemed in Christ. Who's that? Those of us who have trusted in Jesus. What's the promise? That God will be with them. Us. Amen? For how long? A year? A million years? Forever. For eternity. Are you excited? Are you thankful? Who did that? Did we do that? Do we deserve that? The Lord did it. And they will be his people. And if you didn't hear, in case you didn't hear, and God himself will be with them. <laughs> Again, as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Here we see the full and final return to the garden. God dwelling with his people in unhindered fellowship because of the Son. This is the telos or goal of redemptive history. God's redeemed people being with the Redeemer forever. What was the first thing? <clears throat> first point. Say it. What? It's a cacophony. I don't know what you're saying. What was the first point? The presence of the Lord. And what is that? God's promise. Number two, the glory of the Lord. God's purpose. God's glory is his purpose. God's presence is his promise. God's glory is his purpose. God's glory is his ultimate purpose in all that he does. God dwelling with his people. Yes. But why does he do that? So that we might enjoy him and that for his glory. So if God's glory is his purpose and all that he does, we who are in Christ, who have trusted in Jesus, what is our new purpose and all that we do? It's the same. It's God's glory. Exodus 14, verse 4. Exodus 14, 17 to 18. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. Pursue who? Israel. And I will get glory. Ooh. I will get glory, 
Not I might get glory. I, man, listen, I mean, God speaks confidently because he's God, right? I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. <laughs> and they did so in verse 17. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall... No. So did you catch the connection? What's the correlation? Knowledge and? You guys are sharp. I know you are. God reveals himself so that we might know him and we know him for his? Is that glory? Glory. Glory. Hey, man, the kids at kids camp were sharper. than They were quicker than you guys at least. They were on it most of the time. There were a few that one morning. Like five minutes in, I'm like, man, come on, kids. And if you fell asleep at camp, I wrote letters to your parents. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. <laughs> Kids are like, what? They're probably asleep. They didn't hear me. So, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So again, there appears to be a clear correlation, a connection between God's glory and him being known. God wants to be known for his? God reveals himself to be known for his? And the more he's known, the more glory he gets. Again, verse 4, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God is glorified when people know that he is Lord. Why do we evangelize? Now, you could say, well, we evangelize because we love the lost. Good. We evangelize because the king tells us to go. Even better. Amen. But we evangelize. What is the primary motivation for our evangelism? What is our newfound purpose in all that we do as Christians? I want to hear it. God's glory. God's glory. So that others might know him and thus bring him more glory. Here's a really clear picture. Apart from Christ, what are we doing? We're shaking our fists at God. We're saying, I'm king and you're not. But when by God's grace the gospel goes forward and the spirit makes the spiritually dead come alive to trust in Jesus now, that individual or those individuals aren't shaking their fists at God. They're now praising him. Do you see? From rebels to now worshipers. That's why we evangelize. Because when we are moved from rebels to worshipers, who gets the glory? The Lord. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. Let's define glory. This is a huge... I would say this is the key theme in Scripture. This is the central theme in Scripture, God's glory. God's glory shows up all over the OT. What's the OT? The Old Testament. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. Kavod. And it appears in several Old Testament passages. Now, the word itself, kavod, is used as an expression of God's power, his authority, his honor, and his fame. And typically in connection with the visible manifestation of his power in the context of creation, salvation, or judgment. So when God creates, when he saves, when he judges, he is revealing his glory so that we might glorify him. Here's a brief. This is, why did I say brief? This is not brief. This is the longest definition I've ever written for anything. But it's such an important term. You've got to understand it. So 
It's a very exhaustive definition for God's glory. If you want to write this down, good luck. Just listen. God's glory refers to God's revelation of God's power and character through the visible manifestation of his awesome presence in the context of creation, salvation, and judgment, oftentimes in response to promises made. The, the main impetus, right, the, the main thing moving God's story of redemption forward is this kind of play between promise and fulfillment, okay? And when God acts on his promises, he reveals that he's faithful, either judging wickedness or saving sinners like us. What does that reveal about God? He is glorious, and that for his glory. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay, good. Five of you are following me. The purpose of his glory is to evoke knowledge and invite worship. Or think of it this way. God, this is, again, just write this down. God reveals his glory so that we might glorify him. God reveals his glory so that we might glorify him. Have you guys heard that song? You know why? I just wrote it. <laughs> Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans 1, 19 to 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This is our creative purpose, namely to recognize and respond to God's glory. Again, we see this theme of glory in the New Testament, especially with Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, which is where we're going to be next, after Exodus. It's perfect. John 1.14, I've already read it, let me read it again. And the word became flesh, so God appeared, okay? Part of that definition, if you were able to write it down, is uh, God reveals himself, he manifests himself visibly, right? He shows himself through these great acts of creation or salvation or judgment for his glory. And the word became flesh, God shows up, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his Glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 2.11, this, the first of his signs. This is when Jesus turned the water into wine. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his, his glory. And his disciples believed in him. That's really cool. He reveals his glory so that we might know him and we know him for his glory. I tried to explain this to our students. I talked about how when I got saved, I knew this much about God. I knew I was a sinner. Christ was the Savior sent by the Father to save sinners like me, and that I needed to turn from my sin and trust in Jesus. Amen? And I did, by God's grace. But what do you think motivated me as a new believer to learn more about God? Imagine it this way. I've used this illustration here before. You're on vacation. Uh, you're in this really beautiful house, and behind you is a river and there's a waterfall, but the curtains are closed. Can you appreciate the view? Of course not. What if it's just cracked open? Can you appreciate some of it? Yeah, I mean, you can see a little bit, right? I mean, oh, a bird just flew by. <laughs> but then you begin to draw back the curtains, 
And you see more and more. And, and what's the result? Oh, wow. Oh, wonder. The reason we should want to know God more and go deeper in his word and learn more about his character is so that we can do more of this. Wow. Oh, right. The more we know, the more he is glorified. Does that make sense? All right. Where am I? There it is. John eleven forty. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Luke nine thirty two. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men stood with him. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, God's glory. What is the pinnacle of God's glory? What is the climax of God's glory in Scripture? Christ. Christ has come to reveal the glory of God so that we might know him and give him glory. Let me skip down. Let's go to number three. What was the first one? presence of the Lord, which is God's promise. Number two, the glory of the Lord, which is God's purpose. Number three, the victory of the Lord. Or you could just write salvation. The salvation of the Lord. I love you, Lukey. God's means. And you too, Clark. God's means for accomplishing his purpose. The victory of the Lord. God's means for accomplishing his purpose. What's his purpose? What, what's his purpose? Number two, glory. How does he accomplish that purpose? By, by saving us. And when he saves us, we give him glory. God's glory is intimately tied to his salvation, his work of rescue on behalf of his people. God reveals his glory through rescue, through salvation. Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. What a great verse. <laughs> the Lord will fight for you. And you just got to be quiet. Be silent. Just watch. Just watch. Exodus 14.25, And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. The Lord does it. Salvation is the Lord's doing from start to finish. Amen? And in, in this for his, for his glory. We could say boasting, boasting, Kaxome, it's a Greek word, a verb, boast, to glorify, to praise, to boast. Do we have any grounds for boasting in us? No. As Christians, our boasting is in who? It's in Christ. Because who saved us from start to finish? Whose work is it? Who planned it? Who accomplished it? Who will carry it out? Christ. Amen? Yeah. Exodus 14, 21. Now... Pay attention to the subject in each of these passages. Who's the subject doing the action? Okay? The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Exodus 14, 24. And in the morning watch, the Lord in a pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and, here's the verb, threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. Okay, so, so far, who's the subject doing the action? So far, it's the Lord. Do you think it's going to change? I'm guessing it's not. But let's read a few more. Verse 27 of chapter 14. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Exodus 14.30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw 
the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Who is the subject every time doing the action of salvation? Why? For his, for his glory. Why is this so hard for people to grasp? Namely, the fact that salvation is the Lord's doing from start to finish. Why do we struggle with that? Because we want what? What do we want? We want glory. We want recognition. We long for fame. We are naturally, because of our sin nature, glory stealers. I want it. I want the glory. I want it. We want to be able to say, God, look at what I did. I deserve this. No. <laughs> a proper response to Jesus demands that we acknowledge that we don't deserve God's salvation. We deserve God's punishment. We've done nothing to contribute to God's salvation. Christ did it all. Who did it all? Christ. Let's unpack Moses' response in Exodus 14, 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see. Oh, <laughs> fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Moses trusts the Lord. In response to Israel's constant grumbling and complaining, he commands them to fear not, to stand firm, and to see, to watch. To watch what? The salvation of the Lord. This is a reality for God's church today. As we fix our eyes on the cross, we can stand firm or confidently in the saving work of Jesus. Furthermore, we no longer fear judgment. We no longer fear the judgment of God. Since Christ took our place, receiving in himself the punishment we deserve. So fear not, Christian. Stand firm. And look to the cross where God's once-for-all provision of salvation was made. Amen? I taught your kids propitiation. Students, what image did we use for propitiation? I will give you candy next Sunday. If you can tell me. Man, where's Bickley? Little Bickley. She rapped about it. Yeah. Oh! Is that Graham? Oh, dude! I owe you candy, bro. Or would you want a free book from the Nook? How about both? Okay, listen. Jesus is our wrath sponge. What does a sponge do? It absorbs. Who absorbed God's wrath in place of his people? Jesus. I thought that was a great illustration. I didn't make it up. I was doing a Bible study in Washington. God was like... So Jesus is kind of like our wrath sponge. And I was like, oh, I'm going to use that. <laughs> Graham, great job, buddy. That's why the boys won the quiz. Graham carried him. You had him in a backpack. You're like, come on, boys, let's go. Good job, man. I'm, in, I'm encouraged by that, brother. Good job. All right. The theme of salvation through judgment is highlighted once again in our passage. God sovereignly controls the elements to destroy the Egyptians, saving his people by judging who? Who did he judge to save his people? He judged the Egyptians. This whole episode of the waters of judgment crashing over the Egyptians, this is Exodus 14.28, is meant to recall the flood in Genesis. Tim Chester writes, this may seem harsh to us, 
But the men of Egypt are drowned for drowning the boys of Israel. And they are, this is really cool, they are drowned at daybreak. Why is that significant? They were drowned at daybreak. That's Exodus 14, 24, which is when Ra, the sun god, should have risen to their aid. But guess who didn't show up? (laughs) But Ra wasn't able to save them. For the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Verse 18. Now, this next part, this is, I want to say dense. This is, this is tough treading, so pay attention, okay? I want to quickly compare the Red Sea episode, what we just talked about, to Jesus' baptism and what follows. This is really cool. Jesus, in Matthew 3 and chapter 4, seems to be reenacting the events of the Exodus through his baptism. And what happens after he's baptized? Does he go straight into his public ministry? No, he's in the wilderness for how long? 40 days, which corresponds to the 40 years. Jesus is the true Israelite. Jesus is the true Israel who perfectly obeyed the law in our place and who alone stepped into the waters of judgment for us so that we could be forgiven and made right with God. Amen? He's the true Israelite. And you see that in Isaiah. Isaiah talks about the servant of the Lord who would do and be all that the nation of Israel was called to do and be. Israel was called to be a light, but they failed. Who is the light of the world? Christ. Israel failed to keep the law. We failed to keep the law. Who kept the law for us? Christ. Who is righteous? Christ. And who is our only hope for righteousness? Christ. We see this emphasized in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Why? So that no one may boast. We can't boast in ourselves as Christians. Who do we boast in? Christ. Christ, the Son of God, fights for his people. God fights for his people, right? We see that throughout Scripture. He fights for his people. We see it here in Exodus 13 and 14. We see it in 1 Samuel 17 with David and Goliath. But where do we see it most clearly? At the cross where Jesus took the sword for us. He didn't come wielding the sword. He will one day. He took to receive the sword in our place so that we could have forgiveness. Amen? In a right relationship with God. Like Jonah, and we, that was my first book when I got here, right? Jonah. Like Jonah, Jesus would throw himself into the waters of judgment so that others could be spared the wrath of God. However, unlike Jonah, Jesus would do this not for his sin, but for whose? Ours. Tim Chester writes, Jesus plunged into the chaos of the waters of judgment so that we can walk through on dry ground. Isn't that cool? Jesus plunged into the chaos of the waters of judgment at the cross so that we can walk through on dry ground. Imagine the people of God standing safe on the shore watching God's judgment unfold before their eyes. This is what we are doing as we watch with the eyes of faith, God's Son hanging on the cross. The last thing is this, number four, the proper response to the Lord. What was number one? We're almost done, two minutes. Number one, say it again. The presence, which is His promise. Number two, the glory of the Lord, which is His purpose. And number three, the salvation, Lord, which is His means. Was that Riker? I owe you candy too, bro. 
Well, what if I want to give it to you? I'm giving you candy. Dude, Riker, guys, if, do we have a video of the talent show? You had to be there. Next year, Aaron, the whole church is going to kid camp. Yeah. All right, number four, the proper response to the Lord, God's desire. This goes back to God's purpose, his glory. He is glorified. God is glorified when his people recognize his saving work on their behalf and give him their hearts in allegiance. Why would we do that? Why, would we, why is that the appropriate response? To give the Lord our hearts in our allegiance. Because he is he's worthy. He's worthy, Cody. Amen? He alone is the Savior. He alone deserves glory. And those who have been saved are saved to give him glory. And we do that by giving him our hearts in our allegiance. He's worthy. He's worthy. Again, God reveals his glory so that he might be glorified. And one of the key ways he reveals his glory is through his what? His salvation. Who said that? Was that my mom? Good job, mom. What's that? Candy from my mom, yeah. <laughs> Exodus 14, 30 to 31. Thus, now we're almost done. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Here's the response. Israel saw. What did they see? His glory. The great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people, they feared the Lord. And that word in Hebrew refers to what? Awe and wonder, reverence. And they believed in the Lord. God revealed his glory so that his people might glorify him. He revealed his glory through his salvation for his people. How does Israel respond? They're in awe. They fear the Lord and they believed. They believed. The people saw. So they were in awe. Ooh, that rhymed. Riker. The people saw. So they were in awe. And they believed. And that's as far as my rapping skills go. God's glory begets all wonder and faith. Let's put it all together. And then I'll talk about Steve McQueen. Some of the older folks go, what? Steve McQueen. Through the giving of his presence and through his salvation and through his people committing themselves to him, God is glorified. One more time. Through the giving of his presence, which is a gift, and through his salvation, and through his people committing themselves to him, in response to his salvation, God is glorified. And as Christians, we know in Jesus, God has come. In Jesus, God is with us. In Jesus, there is victory over sin, death, and Satan. So trust in him. Trust in him. Trust in him. Rest in him. Rest in him. Rest in him. Christ did it all. You know, there's, a, there's an enemy much greater than a tyrannical ruler in his people. And that is sin. Okay? Is God's salvation for Egypt, I'm sorry, for Israel, saving them from Egypt, is that glorious? Yes. But what enemy, what much greater enemy has the Lord saved us from? Sin. And only those who trust in Jesus will benefit from that saving work. Only those who acknowledge, you know what, I've loved that enemy. In fact, that enemy's been my master all my life. I need rescue from that. And only Jesus is the Savior. Only those who step off the throne, acknowledge they're not king, Jesus is king, the king who lived the life we could not live, died the death we should have died on the cross, and rose again, proving that all his claims are true. Only those 
will know the eternal rescue that God has provided through Jesus Christ. So get off the throne, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus. And if you're a believer, oh, go deeper in the word. Continue to draw back those curtains so that more and more we can give glory to God. Continue to preach the gospel to your unsaved friends and family members and coworkers so that they, by God's grace, can see their sin, see the beautiful Savior, stop shaking their fists at God, and give their praise to God for his what? Glory. One of my favorite classic movies, The Great Escape, 1963, Steve McQueen. Who's seen it? So the Allied forces are in a prison camp. This is during World War II. And they're trying to devise a way to escape. And for the most part, it's a miserable failure, right? Most of them get caught or killed. I love the... Well, I'm not going to sing the song, but I guess I could hum it, but I'm not going to. It's a great movie, but it's really all about human ingenuity and human effort and what happens. It fails. The reason I share that story is because of sin, that's how we approach salvation. We think that because of our own ingenuity and because of our own resources and maybe because of our own moral track record, we can save ourselves. But what's going to happen? Failure. Only Christ. Only Christ. So I'm going to tell you what I told the kids at camp. Flee to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Trust in Jesus, the beautiful Savior. And live your life with his people for his glory. Because, as Cody said, he's worthy. He's worthy. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your beautiful son, Jesus, our glorious Savior, who is worthy. And I pray that we would behold his worth, that we would behold his glory this morning in your word and be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And Father, we pray for any in this place who have not yet, by your grace, beheld the glory of your Son, open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ, move in their hearts, turning them to repent and trust in Jesus for your glory and their joy. Father, I pray that there would just be a greater passion amongst your people at Kelty's in telling this good news to the world so that others, by your grace, may stop shaking their fists at you in rebellion and raise their hands to you in praise. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Amen.